Hello, and my name's Philip Conaghan. I'm an academic rheumatologist from Leeds in the UK, where I run the Arthritis Research Institute at the University of Leeds. And I'm going to chat to you about the future of imaging in psoriatic arthritis. Now, I think the major benefit of modern imaging, and by that I mean MRI and ultrasound, the major benefit remains its ability to de detect subclinical disease, or what we could have also called disease you can't find with your fingers. And, and that's the problem that we have for a lot of peripheral joints. In the spine, we need MRI, and what I'm gonna be talking about is largely peripheral joints. So for peripheral joints, we're often inaccurate with what we find for both enthesitis and synovitis. And you know that's where modern imaging comes in. Now, I do wanna stress that I use a lot of imaging in my research and very little imaging in my clinical practice. And I think taking a good history and examination is still critical for, being, for us being good clinicians. So what about future imaging? Um, for these other modalities. So the impact I think is going to be, firstly, in understanding pathogenesis. And when you think about it, we've now got the ability with modern imaging to get better phenotypes. So now we can link our genomic data and all our DNA data to a better phenotype. But unfortunately at present, I think in PSA studies, there's still a clinical phenotype is used as the gold standard. And I think we can do better and that may well show us something better from all our wet biomarkers and other things people are exploring. The other exciting thing I think for PSA imaging is now understanding preclinical PSA. So in RA, we've had CCP antibodies that we could look at before disease onset. But in PSA, we know there's a whole lot of people with psoriasis who have subclinical enthesitis and synovitis before they develop the clinical disease. So this offers the opportunity for us to do pre-PSA studies, if you like, you know, and intervene before people get psoriatic arthritis. I think that's pretty exciting. And at present, imaging is the best biomarker we've got for detecting a pre-clinical PSA state. Now, in clinical trials, we're already starting to see the impact of imaging work over the last decade to develop scoring systems to look at as an outcome measurement in clinical trials. And Michael Ostergaard's published uh, this year in rheumatology, um, the SAMRAS, the OMRAC PSA MRI score, showing responsiveness in a large um, RCT of over a couple of hundred patients. So that's the tools are now getting better for doing semi-quantitative assessment. And as well, the MRI group and Ashish Matthew published this um, two years ago in RMD Open that um, we've now got heel enthesitis scoring systems for Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis. And these are difficult things to score. You need optimal images, and we're still gonna be developing those. Ultrasounds come a long way in clinical trials. And recently, Maria Antonio D'Agostino um, has shown some wonderful uh, work from a large trial using ultrasound outcomes for synovitis and enthesitis in, in a large cohort study. And that was called the ultimate study and that was presented at um, ACR 21. And there'll be more on that study coming out in EULA coming out. And what it's showing is that the 
Eula Omarak Gloss School, which looks at ultrasound synovitis, both grayscale and power Doppler, is responsive to modern biologic therapy. And so we've now got an objective measure and she's been developing with the Omarak group different enthesitis scores that can be used practically for trials in multiple center studies. So that's a big step forward for ultrasound in PSA clinical trials. And there's a heap of work to be done for ultrasound and MRI on how many joints should we look at, which ones you know, can be done feasibly in a clinical trial. Remember also in clinical trials that most of the people going in tend to have polyarticular PSA. So they're not always typical of the patients you and I see in clinic who might have an oligoarthritis or even a monoarthritis. I think the other exciting things that comes out of clinical trials work is a starting to see that if you want best response, you might want to include people on the basis of imaging detected pathologies. So if you really want to show agent X works better on enthesitis, then you may want to make an inclusion criteria for your study, the presence of imaging detected enthesitis at such and such a site or a number of sites. Because remember that discrepancy between clinical exam, especially for enthesitis, um, and what imaging shows can be quite um, a lot. So I think we're going to be using imaging more for inclusion criteria for clinical trials to enrich for things that are likely to respond in the study. Now, what about in clinical practice? Well, to me, um, ultrasound, which I'm lucky to have access to in clinic, is, is very useful. And the commonest thing we're trying to always refer is patients who've got long-standing psoriasis, joint pain, is this PSA or not? Again, history is very important. Examination is very important. But I find sometimes an ultrasound scan in that group of people can be useful. And you're really looking to see how much osteoarthritis change is there, how much um, tendonitis, peritendonitis, all those sort of other things that we see in psoriasis are there. So I think there's still a big role in that PSA versus osteoarthritis group. We're still not sure whether whole body MRI will come into more routine practice as a screening tool, especially for spinal disease. So I think more work needed there. And I still think that just like in rheumatoid arthritis, beware of what we call the resistant patient who's not responding to therapies as a quick look at them to see if they've actually got active inflammatory inflammation there before you start changing DMARDs and escalating therapy. And I'll finish by saying the future of any imaging now is going to involve artificial intelligence and machine learning quantification. So we've got examples in RA and PSA of that quantification happening in, in image analysis but now we're starting to move into algorithms incorporating deep learning that will incorporate clinical and imaging findings. So the future is definitely in artificial intelligence. Thanks very much. Hi, my name is Alexis Sogdi. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, I'm gonna to talk about psoriatic arthritis prevention. So a couple months ago, I had a patient come to my office who had psoriasis and he was presenting with dactylitis. So the interesting part about this patient is that five years earlier, I had been referred this patient by the dermatologist who's in my uh, next door to my clinic. And he had said, you know, he has psoriasis and I think he's having some joint pain. I don't see anything on exam. Can you take a look at him? And at that time, five years earlier, he had a little bit of joint pain, like some stiffness in his toes, but really nothing. It wasn't bothering him that much. 
he was like 28. So he wasn't really interested in following up. I said, let me just see you back in a year. And of course he died, he disappeared for five years. So uh, that five years later, when I saw him, he had just developed the dactylitis and in the interim actually hadn't had any other symptoms of joint and any other joint symptoms, no other joint swelling or anything. So one of the concepts of PSA prevention is five years earlier when I saw him, is there a way that I could have done something differently in order to prevent that onset of dactylitis? So that's some of the work that we've been doing lately is we've been examining what are the risk factors for development of psoriatic arthritis? And if we treat psoriasis, particularly in those patients who are at moderate to high risk for PSA, can we actually prevent the onset of clinically apparent psoriatic arthritis? So first, as far as risk factors, there's been a number of different studies, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, examining the risk, uh, risk, what are the different risk factors for psoriatic arthritis? So some of the ones that we know are obesity. Obesity is pretty strongly associated in, across a variety of different studies. So it suggests that there really is something there. Number two is trauma. There's been a couple of studies that have suggested that. Infection has been seen in a couple of different studies or has popped up in different types of infections. Um, and then psoriasis severity as well. So the more severe psoriasis, uh, the more likely you are to develop inflammatory arthritis. Finally, if you have IBD or uveitis, those are also risk factors. Not so clear whether or not smoking has a role, maybe for some people, maybe not for some other people. So let's say we take some of those independent risk factors like smoking, uh, sorry, severity of psoriasis, obesity, depression is another one. And if you have a set of those, maybe you get a certain number of points. So that piece is supposed still to be worked out. How many points do you need? What do you make? What makes up points? How much does each piece contribute? What contributes independently? So that's a lot of where the work is now. But we've come up with kind of a set of those and we kind of arbitrarily said, let's say you have a couple of these and we're gonna call that high risk. So the PAMPA trial has just launched, Jose Share and Chris Richland are, are the PIs for that particular trial. And in that trial, we're randomizing patients with psoriasis and elevated risk factor, elevated risk, no, you know, kind of basically any of those risk factors, and then randomizing them to therapy or no therapy for their psoriasis, and then following them forward in time to see if we, they develop psoriatic arthritis. Now we have to have some kind of short-term piece there because development of psoriatic arthritis occurs over course of you know five years in the case of the patient that I mentioned. So we're using ultrasound in the interim. This is of course gonna be a first trial. There's probably gonna be many trials like this that'll have to happen and, and kind of advancing each piece. And additionally, longitudinal observational studies like in the Toronto cohort, they're following people over time. So there's still lots of, to learn here, but I think there are some, there's certainly been a lot of movement forward in the last two to three years, which is really exciting. And I'm looking forward to the results of this trial in the next few years. Uh, so stay tuned and look out for additional information coming soon. Thanks so much for your attention. Hello, my name is Ken Gordon. I'm the Chair of Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And I'd like to talk for a few moments about what are sort of our ambitions? Where's the direction we could get in plaque psoriasis and, and psoriasis in general over the next five to 10 years? I think it's a little different in psoriasis when we look at um, having very high level efficacy in our medications right now. We are hitting posi 90s in clinical trials at approximately, you know, 80% of patients in some of the new met, newer medications, even higher in some. So we have to look at where we're going to go in terms of improving upon that. And I think there are three basic areas we can look at. The first is in patients with more limited disease, how can we find new topicals that'll be helpful to patients? Because while we always talk about 
systemic medications and how we're treating patients with very severe disease. Most patients have relatively limited disease that are amenable to topical therapy. And we really haven't seen a lot of progress in topical therapy since, to be honest, you know, the 1960s and 1970s when topical corticosteroids came out. We've had some improvements with topical vitamin A and vitamin D derivatives. And there are two new pathways that are being tested right now that will hopefully make additions. But still, the, the mainstay is still topical corticosteroids. And so as we develop new agents for topical use, it's really going to help a lot of patients and, and many will not have to go on systemic therapies in the future. And I think that would be a major advance. The second area is in systemic therapy for people with severe disease. And how do we think about the best way to treat patients, not as using chronic therapy at all times, but are there things we can do to stop and start treatment? I think the ideal we would look at is trying to say, are there medications we can give and give prolonged responses off medication. Um, we see that a little bit with anti-IL-23 agents, but still um, looking at agents that might, for example, impact um, the T suppressor system and regulatory T cells might give us a chance to give medication, get patients better, and then leave them off treatment for extended periods of time. And I think if you think about patients um, and that their ambitions, the first question they ask is, when can I get off this medication? having a time where you could do that would be a great advance for our patients. The other option to think about is can we give pa patients medications that will work quickly and repeatedly, where if they're doing well, they can go off treatment and then retreat when it comes back. And one thing we have to remember in plaque psoriasis, unlike uh, inflammatory joint disease, is we really don't worry about long-term disease modification or changes in permanent effects like joint, pay, uh, joint space changes that we can't reverse. Almost everything, at least clinically in psoriasis, is reversible. And so if we could give medication, stop it, and then only give it when the disease comes back, patients would have, be able to have periods where they're not on medications. And I think that is something, especially with new oral medications that might be more amenable to stopping and starting, is something that could be um, a clear benefit. The last area I think we still have room to go and I think we have to work on is special areas, particularly the palms and soles. Those are areas that biologics really don't work nearly as well at. And we have to get medications that can penetrate these areas where the skin is a little bit different and be able to um, show some improvement. Some of the ideas that people have had is using small molecules, JAK inhibitors, for example, that haven't been tried on those uh, areas, but might be something of significant benefit. Um, or alternatively, small biologics, small peptides that might block our targets and then be able to um, have some improvement and be able to penetrate these very uh, difficult areas to treat. So while palms and soles are the primary areas we worry about, but you can think about patients who have difficulty with inverse psoriasis, general psoriasis, or even scalp, though not so much in, in the scalp, and needing to find new areas and potentially new drugs that can attack the mechanisms in a way that will work in those special areas. So if I really had to think about where we're going in the next five to 10 years, uh, where I would hope we would go is, as I said, finding new topicals that can be helpful for patients, um, two, being able to find medications that will give prolonged responses even off medication, three, developing protocols with existing medicines or new medicines 
that will allow people to be off for periods of time and be able to have consistent treatment thereafter. And finally, finding ways to treat specific areas, particularly the palms and soles, uh, and, and getting patients to have relief in those areas that are actually very critical to them. Good day, everybody. My name is Katie Leung. I'm from Singapore General Hospital and Duke NUS Medical School. Today, I'm going to talk about the future of biomarkers for psoriatic arthritis. So a biomarker is a measurable indicator of severity or the presence of a disease. So it can be classified in a number of ways. Uh, if you talk about um, imaging, it would be imaging biomarkers like X-ray, MRI, and ultrasound. There could be uh, clinical biomarkers. We include a physical sign, a physical uh, status that a patient in. Of course, we can talk about the biological process that you measure it in blood, uh, urine, um, synovial fluid, or even tissue. Of course, the other way of classifying it is according to the function of the biomarkers. It's like uh, whether it is a biomarker of a presence or absence of disease, it's a, a diagnostic biomarkers. Uh, we also have a um, biomarker of disease severity. We talk about differentiating severe disease from the uh, milder disease. Of course, we also have biomarkers that predict drug response or interventional response. So out of all these functions, I think the most interesting would be biomarkers that predict the treatment response. So as we know that uh, up to 30% of our psoriatic arthritis patients they do not have adequate response even to the most powerful uh, biologic or uh, synthetic DMARCs. So uh, if we shift them into another class of drug, interestingly, they would have some kind of response. So, but uh, we cannot predict what the response of a patient towards drugs. So what we have been using now is looking into the domain that this patient is affected and also looking into comorbidity and make a best guess. But uh, however, a lot of time is that um, the best guess doesn't work. And then we have to shift again after three months or half a year, which means that it's a waste of time um, and also a waste of opportunity. So uh, how wonderful it might be if there are some biomarkers that help us to predict response. There are some of these uh, biomarkers that's been studied, including the CRP, uh, the plasma C3 level, interleukin-16. Uh, um, there are uh, a study using the global review trial data set and looking into a 14 biomarkers panel and try to predict a response. And these, some of these biomarkers, uh, including interleukin-16, the VADGAM, the MMP3, and CRP. Uh, and these things have been proved to be more useful than CRP alone. As for tissue biomarker, which um, some group of um, researchers have studied in rheumatoid arthritis have been employed in psoriatic arthritis. So they take tissue, synovium tissue from patients and try to use um, these to predict a, a DES28 response. And some of these biomarkers in a combination is proved to be quite useful. However, all of these studies need more validation. Of course, the most um, interesting part will be a um, study coming from the Japanese group. They try to use a, a cytometry method 
to distinguish between an interleukin-1 signal and interleukin-17 signal. So from this interleukin-1 signal and interleukin-17 signal, they have four groups and stratify accordingly and give them the appropriate treatment in the stratify group as compared to the standard group. Interestingly, what they found is that the stratify treatment group has almost double the clinical response as compared to the standard treatment group. Although this is a very tiny study uh, that will need a lot of validation in future, it is indeed a proof of concept that we can use biomarkers to predict treatment response and help our patient to better choose the treatment uh, of choice. Of course, needless to say that um, these, although um, we have all these biomarkers, it's still in its infancy and need a lot of uh, modification and validation. Some of the challenges include that um, the variability in the standardized protocol, there's lack of a standardized operation procedure um, in, in all of the things, including the sample collection, in uh, processing, in transport, in storage, and also the experiment and analytical analysis. So of course, we also uh, have other obstacles like the biological uh, diversity, age, sex, ethnicity, lifestyle, diet, etc. And of course, we also have the disease heterogeneity for psoriatic arthritis. It might be the peripheral joint arthritis, it might be sorry, uh, might be the psoriasis, might it might be the enthesitis or ductilitis. Each of these will affect how we define outcome, what is responder as compared to non-responders. But um, a group of international collaborators as collated by uh, the GRAPA, has been putting all these things together as led by um, Professor Chris Richland and also Oliver Fitzgerald. They are putting a, a, a collaboration of uh, researchers, we call them CRN, then they are developing this kind of standardized protocol. So majority of the um, Biomarker studies are coming from single center and the sample size is still small. Majority of them are looking at one modality. Of course, now we have advances in technology looking into the omics that can help us to deeper understand the pathogenesis of psoriatic arthritis. We have several kinds of uh, omics technology like uh, transcriptomes, proteomics, and immunomics. Transcriptomes mean that we are having a snapshot of uh, what the cells are making in the RNA. It's a snapshot of all the RNA the cells are making at the time of sampling of the sample, whether it is a skin sample, blood samples, or um, uh, synovial fluid sample, and even uh, tissue samples. So um, it's a snapshot. And proteomics, is at the time what the cells are making, all the proteins, these are the effectors that are protein that is making the cell functioning. And immunomics is talking about the cell type, no matter it's T cell, it's B cell, and all of these are going into very deep understanding, going to the level of single cells that you can look into the different cell type of T cells, you can look into different cell type of B cell. One of these um, um, key 
uh, cells that is um, very interesting is the T-Rex cells. They are making a lot of uh, impact over there. So um, I'll, I will be staying optimistic about biomarkers because the advancement of technology is there. We have different portals. And in future, we can combine all these um, portals to give us a better understanding of pathogenesis and also help us to um, evaluate for the biomarkers. We have the unmet need is there, it's huge. We don't know how to predict treatment response. We have the science and we have the technology and we can combine modalities. We uh, have standardized protocol and procedure in the future. And I'm sure we will be able to find something for the future to make our patients better. Thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Christopher Richland. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. And today we just had a beautiful spring day. It was really marvelous. And I am going to talk to you about where I foresee the treatment of psoriatic arthritis will be over the next 10 to 15 years. Now, as you know, uh, doctors are very good at diagnosis and treatment, but we're not great at foretelling the future. So uh, I can only say to you that you'll have to take this for uh, my current opinion at this time, but whether these come true, we'll have to see. But I truly believe some of the things that I'm going to mention are highly likely to unfold over that time period. So one of the challenges we face with psoriatic arthritis, as you're aware, is that despite the approval of 13 to 14 agents by the Food and Drug Administration over the last 20 years, we've not seen a significant increase in treatment response. And so we really need to improve our outcomes for our patients with PSA. And some of those developments I'm gonna talk about, I think have a good chance of doing that. So let's get started. If you look at agents that are gonna be coming out over the next several years, I think the ones to focus your attention on are the agents number one, that inhibit interleukin 17A and F. And these are uh, two different isoforms of IL-17. And the thinking here is that by inhibiting both A and F and AF, that you may improve your outcomes. There are two agents that are doing this, that can do this. One is bimikizumab, which is an IL-17 ANF antibody, and phase three results from their CPSA trials will be revealed at the upcoming ULAR meeting in June. The other drug is sonolocumab, which is a nanobody, so it's IL-17A on one side, F on the other, and albumin in the middle. The advantage of this compound is that it's very small and it may be able to penetrate tissues better. There was an active comparator trial phase 2B of sonolocumab and secukinumab and psoriasis published in The Lancet. And certainly sonolocumab was better than placebo. It wasn't powered to compare to secukinumab, uh, but they had some higher responses to the deeper outcomes of psoriasis, such as the PASI-90, uh, and also, but they had more candida infection. So we'll have to see how these two agents stack up uh, down the line. The second agents are the JAK inhibitors. Uh, and there are, as you know, ubodacitinib is recently approved for PSA and has very impressive data for skin and joints. And ducravacitinib is entering 
uh, phase th uh, three trials in PSA. It's a TIC2 inhibitor, more targeted to IL-23. We already know from phase two trials in psoriatic arthritis, it's more effective than placebo. It's also effective for psoriasis, which is impressive given that it's an oral drug. So the other areas that I think are going to be very important down the line are targeting obesity and the, the microbiome. So we know that obesity is a major confounder and leads to poor treatment outcomes and obesity is very highly prevalent in PSA. So there are a variety of approaches that have been taken, including uh, Mediterranean diets, uh, high, very aggressive low calorie diets, the low calorie diet approach from Klingberg up in Sweden showed it to be very effective in improving outcomes in PSA. There's currently a trial being run by Leahy Eater and Alexis OD that is looking at a more of a Mediterranean diet, and we'll see how that intervention proves to be helpful in treating PSA, along with other medicines, of course. And then we're going to see a number of other strategies come forward, such as intermittent fasting and other dietary approaches. There are also approaches to alter the microbiome, and we're getting, a, we're getting this uh, people coming to us from a number of companies and startups looking to use nutrients, to use various metabolites, and even some types of bacteria that can uh, release agents or metabolites that actually boost the immune system. So this is another area that's very exciting. The third approach is going to be to find new pathways of pathogenesis. And there's a huge effort in the United States under what's called the AMP-AIM program, which is a consortium of industry, academic centers, and the NIH. And this is uh, targeted to try and understand the basic pathophysiology of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis using many novel techniques. Uh, including single-cell RNA-seq on synovial tissue, skin, and blood, as well as spatial transcriptomics, metabolomics, and understanding what's going on in the microbiome. There's a huge project being funded uh, by industry and the NIH, and it's just getting started. Similar effects uh, efforts are underway in Europe with Hippocrates, which is very similar to AMP-AIM, and the Biomap program, which is centered in psoriasis. So I think we're going to have a much better idea of the key pathophysiologic pathways, which I'm hoping and I think uh, will, will trigger the development of new agents. And the last thing is early intervention. So identifying patients with psoriasis at risk for psoriatic arthritis. And we have a trial that's underway. It's called the POMPA trial where we're identifying patients at higher risk who uh, based on ultrasound findings, even though they have no musculoskeletal pain, and these patients are receiving uh, gusalcomab versus placebo with a third group that is on only not on any systemic therapy. Uh, so that we'll know in a couple of years whether this approach is uh, helpful in trying to either delay or prevent the onset of PSA. And then the last thing is combination biologics. Uh, I happen to think that this is going to be a very important move forward. And a trial is currently just started called the Affinity Trial which is treating patients with PSA who failed one anti-TNF with guselcomab, the anti-IL-23, and golimumab versus guselcomab alone. So this will be the first biologic trial in psoriatic arthritis and will give us really important insight as to whether or not 
this type of approach is effective and safe for the treatment of PSA? Well, there you have it. Those are my view, that the views of where the field will be in 10 or 15 years. And hopefully we'll be sitting in a situation where our outcomes are much improved. Thank you for your attention.